Hello and welcome to another edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. My name is Zach Groff, and I'm your host, and I have the pleasure of welcoming to the program today Nick Batsig. He is a graduate of Greenville Seminary and currently pastors in Richmond Hill at New Covenant Presbyterian Church. He also interned at 10th Presbyterian the Church in the past, and so we have a mutual connection with Philadelphia. So Nick blogs at Feeding on Christ. He's written numerous articles for Table Talk Magazine, Modern Reformation, Ref 21, and the Christ Word Collective. Those last two he is editor for. He's also published in a couple of volumes on Jonathan Edwards, and he has his own podcast. He's host of the podcast East of Eden, which is devoted to biblical and systematic theology of Jonathan Edwards. So I encourage any of our interested listeners uh, to check that out when you can. And finally, Nick is, uh, Nick is hosting at his church for the first time their first annual theology conference dealing with the issue of um, Reformed worship, and Dr. Piper will be speaking at that this upcoming weekend, May 6th. So, Nick, welcome to the program. Thanks, Zach. Good to be on. It's good to have you, brother. And we're going to be talking today a little bit about um, something that is familiar to Nick and hopefully of interest to our listeners, and that is the topic of church planting, particularly what do you do as a church plant matures, and not just in the formal sense of particularization, but goes through uh, some of the, not growing pains, but just things that happen in a church as it grows and as its people grow in their spirituality and involvement in the church and outreach to the community. So Nick, I guess without further ado, can you explain to to me and to our listeners the transitions that have to happen when you take a church from a church plant to an established church like you've done at New Covenant? Yeah, so I think all the dynamics vary from situation to situation and that anything really uh, prepares you for what each step is going to bring with it as every church is different. I was mentioning to you before the dynamic we have at New Covenant is that we are in in a military town. We have Fort Stewart, which is uh, home of the 3rd ID Army base to the west of us. And there's about 100,000 there in Hinesville, Georgia, which is just due west of Savannah. Mm -hmm. And then... um, we are to the other side of us, just to the north of us, is Hunter Army Air Base, which is an Apache helicopter base. So we have a, a in proportionate number of Army officers in the town in which I live, um, the southernmost suburb of Savannah, and a whole. Um, at any given time, we probably have between 40 and 70% army officers and their families. I think right now it's probably about 60 plus percent. So that makes for, yeah, that that makes for very unique uh, dynamics that you're not going to have necessarily in a rural farming community or in a big city per se. Uh, It's probably a little bit closer to what you would have uh, doing college ministry. Mm -hmm. And so anything I'm going to say today is going to be thrown against the background of that and uh, so if somebody's listening and they're in 
uh, military town, they'll probably appreciate it more mm-hmm. um, just because they they understand those dynamics. But you know, there are there are typical transitions that have to occur. Obviously, to, your church plant has to grow large enough for you to to have worship. So when we started, we didn't have any people in January of '09, and by August of 2009, we had about 25. Um, with which we could start worship service. So we did evening worship. Yeah, August 16th, uh, 2009 was our first service. And I think we had 25. And then, and some of them were temporary. So somewhere between 25 and 30 with a few temporary people. And then uh, by January, we had moved to morning service and we had stopped doing the evening service. It's actually one of the things the OPC church planning manual wisely says that a church plant shouldn't start with a morning and an evening Mm -hmm. because there's so many other things that you need to develop um, in a church plant that you don't have to do with a more established church, that um, these sort of progressions in church planning uh, make a lot of sense and give the church the time he needs to do all the other things he has to do. But uh, so we stopped doing evening worship in January of 2010. Uh, we went to morning worship at about 50 or so, maybe 60 um, by that time. So we were starting to grow, picking up more families. We were in a daycare at that point. Um, and then I, in the evenings, I started doing a men's leadership group every other Sunday night. And what that did for about four years, I did that. That enabled me to train men. And again, we have a lot of transitions. So, you know, somebody else could have probably achieved what we achieved in four and a half, five years um, from that point. Uh, somebody else could probably achieve in two years, two and a half years. So just to spell that out, when you say transition, um, for those of our listeners who don't have a military background, can you just briefly describe what you mean by that and the unique dynamics of having a largely, a congregation largely made up of of military families? Yeah. So, I mean, there are a couple things that you're trying to accomplish when you plan a church. You're trying to get critical mass you're trying to become self-supporting financially, and you're trying to get officers. Those are kind of your three transitional steps. Get critical mass, which means you know you don't want to you don't want uh, to try to make something happen prematurely. I, I think we did that to some extent. Um, it would have been nice to have had fifty or sixty before we ever started worship, but it happened the way it happened, and that's okay. Um, we fairly quickly became financially self-sustaining. I think it was within three years we were already uh, financially self-sustaining, which I, I'm not sure if we were bringing in maybe 180000 a year, which is, is decent. I mean, it's not a lot of things. Um, right now our budget I think is three seventy five, which is also not – enormous when you consider budgets of churches, our size or bigger. Um, but you've got those two things. And then obviously elders um, first and then hopefully deacons. And so one of the, the difficult things for us with a church with so many army officers who are only going to be here for six months to three years max mm-hmm. is – you know, how do you make them officers? Can you make them officers? They're, you know, they're 
doing TDY, temporary duty. They're um, getting trained elsewhere around the country, field work where they're gone a month at a time, and then tons of deployments. We, we had men who were deployed three times and they're stay here for nine months apiece. And their families, Not, so, I mean, if they had families, their families would be then under the care of the church as they're away, right? Yeah, so we're trying, we're, we're trying to develop something into something stable and to care for people with this high transition. So yeah. our work was, was unique, and I think it was uniquely difficult in that sense, um, at the beginning, and and this is still somewhat of a rule for us, we would not have made an army active enlisted army officer uh, um, an elder, not with the first round of elders, which took us six and a half years to get to, wow. um, because you know if we had done that, then we would would have been constantly retraining, constantly rebuilding instead of having men that we hoped or thought were going to be here for an extended period. And we went through some really difficult things. I thought we would have organized sooner. We were in that period of training on those Sunday evenings. I I had some really, really great men and uh, moved away. On top of the had with the army and and the normal kind of PCSing, permanent changes station, all of their uh, transitionings in and out, we uh, we had to say goodbye to a number of men that took jobs elsewhere, took over their parents' business in other states, moved back. One man went back to his wife in California. He had been estranged from her. Hmm. Um, we just had tons and tons of transitioning. So that really set the process back. And I think... Um, in that sense, the organization of New Covenant was not normal, and um, and that transition we needed to attain. And most church plants, I think it's three to five years, they say, is the average. It took us six and a half to get elders. Mm. But I think it paid off to not rushing, I think, was really wise for us in making that next transition. So, And at the end of the day, <clears throat> six and a half versus five years, it doesn't sound like that much of a delay when you consider the extraordinary uh, degree or number of transitions that you were dealing with. But one thing that I've noticed, at least in the Philadelphia area, when when the, there's a lot of church plants up there and people kind of cycle through church plants, even if they're not moving away. And the most successful church planters that I encountered up there had a real capital K kingdom vision. They weren't so bent on building their congregation, that they lost sight of the positive impact they were having on folks who were even only around for a few months. And in your experience, and I'm particularly thinking of this guy you mentioned that went back to California to be reunited and reconciled to his wife, um, you know, are you able to stay in touch with some of these folks that do move away and at least draw some encouragement from that, if nothing else? Yeah, like I said, it's a lot like college ministry for us in the sense that you have to get used to losing people on a regular basis. I just counted up the other day how many people we lost to transitions in the last year and four months. So, um, well, year and a half from October of 2018 until... Uh, April of 2017, we lost a hundred adult, adults and kids that were members. Wow! So, and and you know we were averaging I think 150ish people then, and we're still averaging 150. So, mm-hmm. you get something of the sense of how m- much 
transition, you know, and then before that hundred, there have been hundreds that have been through here, have been members. So in the early years, it was really tough. Uh, I wanted to quit all the time. As I, th I see most college guys get, college ministers get really tired of the turnover, the constant turnover and the re restarting, which we don't have entirely a complete restart. But I think something happened about four years in, a friend of mine who goes to a Baptist church in Savannah, I was kind of complaining about more of our families because a lot of these families are the best families you get too. Yeah. Really, you know, army officers usually are very committed, you know, giving of time, energy, good families, very respectful of authority, just across the board, top-notch church members. And um, I was complaining about it. And he said, what are you complaining about? He said, you know, my sister and brother-in-law uh, are foster care parents. And he said, best case, I, to these kids, you never see them again, but you got them a better home. Yeah. And that really perspective, I think from that point on, from about four, four and a half years ago to the next four years, I've been here eight and a half, I'm just used to it now. You know, I'm, I'm glad that we're able to pour into people. They're going elsewhere. They'll be a blessing to people. They'll take the things they've learned. So, you know, you kind of get used to it, but it is hard. The first four and a half years was really, really tough. So, mm -hmm. you know, I've never drawn that parallel between... Um, guys who are ministering in churches that have, you know, a high percentage of military folks who are being moved around by Uncle Sam all the time and college ministry, but that parallel is perfect, or that analogy is just, that, that, that makes perfect sense to me. And, um, and you know, I, I worked in college ministry, you know, not directly on the campus, but I was surrounded by campus uh, staff people, campus ministry staff people all the time. And that was, of course, the most exhausting thing every fall, needing to meet 70 new freshmen at least in order to keep your group uh, going. And then every May saying goodbye to the most experienced, uh, closest people to you. And um, I can just imagine that that's really difficult where you are at as well. And we have a number of graduates who are either planting in similar contexts or pastoring small congregations in, in similar contexts near army bases or military bases. Um, in fact, one of our graduating seniors, you probably know Josh, he's down in Florida, and, um, and he was part of a church plant uh, that is very intentionally grounded and rooted in a, in a military community, and it, it, just all the same difficulties that you described in terms of getting continuity and building folks up. Now, in your unique context, what kinds of resources did you find most helpful? What books or articles could, that you could suggest to other folks that might be of use to them or even, you know, particular sermons or, or men that you reached out to? You know, where did you go for help? Yeah, you know, for us who love theology and love doctrine, it's it's, it's sort of hard because this is definitely an area where we are weak and um, we're almost afraid of the practical. And, and I understand that. I definitely, you know, I definitely sympathize with people who have an aversion to just sort of pragmatic, really what you need when you're trying to take a church plant um, onto the next stages and whatnot. 
And so there were a lot of things that I found helpful by men like Tom Rayner uh, with Lifeway, his mm. blog. I thought a lot of those articles, Tim Challies publishes uh, a lot of very helpful articles in his a la carte section and numerous articles that you'll read deal with kind of the dynamics of churches and struggles that churches have in, in different stages and whatnot. So I think that blogs really helpful. You know, I came in right on the tail end of the Acts 29 explosion and the Driscoll uh, explosion in 2008 and nine. He was bigger than ever. I mean, that was the zenith. And Whatever people think about Driscoll and, and that whole thing, I found a lot of the articles that Acts 29 was putting out back then to be very helpful. You know, what to look for when you're looking for a building. And mm. Driscoll would write articles about, here's 20 things to consider. Hey, don't go into a building that burned the community because they're always going to identify you with whatever was in there. That kind of stuff where it's much more tangible, tangible, um, practical, but really valuable kind of developmental ideas. Um, Greenville, I felt like uh, uh, Tony Curto gave us some of those things in our class on on missions and church planning about, you know, he, he would talk about engaging the community by going out um, and giving out baskets to you know, new homeowners or whatnot in, in trying to reach out in a very tangible way. And some of those practical things, I think that those kind of articles really helped me. And then I wrote my way through, Zach. I really, I think a lot of what I've written that's not explicitly theological in nature was really written as I kind of grew and gathered a lot of counsel from older men that I, I admired. And I, I would say this, that any man who's seeking to either plant a church or carry that on to be established needs wise mentors who have been there, who who can be there for them when they're hitting those walls and frustrations and challenges and don't know what to do. And Roland Barnes was that for me. He mm. planted Trinity PCA in Statesboro. And Roland was really my church planning coach, especially the first six and a half years. I just called him all the time. And now that I have my own session, you know, much of what is done is done in-house. And then, you know, I still call him and others, but I really relied heavily on him, Ben, who had who had been in ministry for 20, 30 years and, you know, whose brains I could pick on these things. So mm-hmm. Now, in those first six and a half years, I, is that too early to have seen your gospel reformation pastors group uh, come into play. That's more, that's more of a recent invention, right? Gospel reformation network. Um, not the network. I know the network's been around for a few years, but the, um, the group of pastors that, that you meet with on a monthly basis, um, not, not in person, but uh, you, yeah, have yeah, yeah. Conver- you know what we're talking about. Yeah, so I have a number of different groups that I get together with and friends that I kind of do very um, methodical conversations with. And I meet with a group of about eight eight or nine PCA pastors um, who are in all kinds of different stages of ministry. Some of, some of the guys pastor churches with 3,000 people and some pastor with 
150, 180. And, um, and we talk about all kinds of stuff. We meet once a month and for one hour. And that, that's been really helpful just to kind of learn from other brothers what they do and um, have definitely gleaned a lot from them and benefited from them. And so that has been really helpful. And I would definitely encourage that to anybody listening to this in ministry if they don't have a group of like-minded friends who are in pastoral ministry at different stages and different sizes of churches, different dynamics, that is, it's a really beneficial thing. If you could do anything differently, uh, you know, going over it again, what, what would it be? What would you do differently? Oh man. Um, you know, there are, Lots of things I think I could have done better. Um, mistakes I could have avoided. I think in the early days I rushed to form committees because you I, and I find committees to be very helpful in in you know distributing the workload of the church and getting people involved and using their gifts on a congregational level. Um, but not having our own session committees created almost a de facto um, congregational session at points. And that created issues for us. I don't know what I would have done differently with that regard. I mean, that, that, was, that was a difficult thing because I think we created committees at about 70 or 80 people because at that point you can't, you can't just have this little group where everybody's together and you're saying, okay, well, next we're going to do this and then we're going to do this. You have to have structure. But I, I almost wish I had elders first and then committees. But it just, you know, it was one of those learning experiences. So I'm not sure I would have done it differently. Um, I, I wish it could have occurred differently. Personally, I mean, how did you provide oversight think to it, to committees like that? Especially if you're experiencing a lot of transitions and you know having to you know introduce new people to committees over and over and over again. I mean, how did you manage that? I mean, it almost sounds like it would it would be more work on you to to just keep the committees alive and functioning without elders helping you out in that context. But maybe I'm wrong. Well, I don't think it created. Did more work. I think it. I think it was necessary. I mean, you know, when you want to transition, it's always going to take a lot of work. I think that's why a lot of very, very small churches never grow because people don't want to do the hard work. Mm-hmm. But, um, and I don't mean that as a refutation of what you said. I just, I just mean it. it everything ministry takes a lot of work. Um, but I don't think it was super healthy for it to just be me with 120 people <laughs> and a provisional session that wasn't on the ground floor. Yep. You know, we were easy 120 when I was by myself without a secretary, without an assistant pastor. And that was, that was not a, a healthy situation. Um, so, you know, I relied heavily on our people though. And that's, that is healthy. Yeah. It is healthy to have congregants using their gifts and serving and volunteering and giving of themselves. But I do think that was, if I could have done something differently and I knew what to do there, I would have done it differently, but I'm not sure I had an option. Um, the other thing I would have done differently, people I would have discouraged being a part of our church plant. And 
that's something you learn in hindsight after you realize this family really isn't cut out to be a part of a church plant. Because especially in a military town, there are just dynamics that if people want a more established church, if they want programs, if they want if they want a church to be, they really want to be in a church that's 100 plus years old or 50 plus years old. And when you're in a church that's, you know, three or five or seven years old, um, you can't expect it to look like a 50, 60, 100-year-old church. Mm. And so I think there were families I would have, I, I tried to grope in and sort of, hey, you know, we really need you to be a part of this. And and we probably really didn't <laughs> in hindsight. Um, so things I would have done differently. Um, uh, well, of course, and then I would have applied the things I've learned sort of administratively um, back in the early days, um, having a bookkeeper from outside of the church handling all of our finances, mm-hmm. you know, structural procedures. It, it would have been nice to have had procedures in place for committees, um, much more detailed procedures. And, and in some ways, I felt like we were trying to reinvent the wheel as we went along, which was not helpful. So, yeah. If you had any advice other than what you just said, some of the obvious implications of that, like, you know, get a bookkeeper who's outside of the church. Other than those kinds of things, what kind of advice would you give to a guy who is entering into the work of either organizing a church, planning a church, or revitalizing a church? Yeah, I think I would tell a man who is just about to start a church plant or revitalize a church or is trying to carry a church plant on to sort of the next level uh, to get plenty of rest before he does. I would encourage him to seek a lot of counsel. I see a lot of guys who are trying to do church revitalization or planning on their own. Hmm. And they sort of, I, I see guys that sort of isolate themselves in their work and, and I'm afraid for them because I've made it without lots of counsel and support and, you know, those networks and, um, and not just relying on, um, but especially, especially in our Presbyterian form of government, relying on other local churches in the same denomination. If you have that option in like-minded or sister denominations, um, that is vital, I think, to making it. I would also say don't be afraid to emphasize your weakness and your insufficiency. I think a lot of guys don't seek out the counsel that they need because they think it's a mark of weakness and they think they're not supposed to show weakness. And so what they end up doing is they end up bearing the burdens by themselves and it crushes them until they leave. And I think it is a, a spiritually healthy thing. You see that with the Apostle Paul. He's looking for Timothy. He's looking for Titus. He he needs the camaraderie. He says he had no rest in his spirit when he didn't find Titus in Troas. Um, he's pressed down, weighed down. Um, and so I, I think I would tell men how hard it is and how much um, burdens on you, not in a self-pitying sense, but in a sense where you're, you're um, going to others to help you bear the burdens. Say, mm-hmm. don't be afraid to be hurt by other men 
ministers when you do that. I had I had a couple of cases where I went to ministers in those early days just to express how hard it was. I mean, I had no people when I started. And those that first year and a half, two and a half years were so hard. And I had two ministers really, really, when I went to explain how burdened I was. Um, and so I think you need to guard your heart once you do that um, against men who um, pious, uh, sort of approach, you know, and and I actually had one man, I told him just how much I was struggling. And he said, I'm afraid this is going to disqualify you from ministry, which was a very wicked thing to say to a man um, who's going to another minister to be, mm. you know, strengthened in the Lord. So I think you have to guard your heart. Um, and then the last thing I'd say, when I came in, I said, I had a, a set determination. I said, I'm going to try to stay set seven to 10 years if the Lord wills. Mm-hmm. And I've been here eight and a half and I don't have a plan to move on, but you know, seven to 10 years was kind of my, my goal because I had been part of a church in the Philadelphia area that was planted by a guy who stayed for 10 years and then he left. And I realized how unfinished that, that work was. Mm. How yeah. much, how many of his own blind spots um, we're bearing on the church and and I know that's true about me and this church and so I do think it's valuable for another man to be able to come in behind a guy who plants and grows a church initially but I also think it's good for you to have some kind of set time period I, I you know it used to be in the PCA and I'm not sure about the OPC but in the PCA it was kind of standard fare if a guy planted a church he went in two to three years maybe five years max planted the church and then he didn't take the call he moved on and I'm I'm not convinced I'm neither convinced of sort of the go for 25 to 30 years in one place because I don't think the Bible says you have to do that um, nor am I convinced that it's healthy for a guy three or five years. Um, I think with the latter, the danger is the work is so unfinished. The next guy comes in and he takes a little different direction and it shakes the people up. Then he leaves and somebody else comes in and takes them another direction. And then by that time, the congregation doesn't want to follow somebody anymore. Mm. So that's kind of the weakness, I think, of too short a stay. And then too long a stay, I think, you know, you you do have the congregation takes on the personality of the pastor and whatever blind sightnesses you have, whatever shortcomings you have are going to be re- reflected in the congregation. You know, so it's worth thinking about those if are, and when to move on. Those are all good points. And what I'm hearing you say is there's not one hard and fast norm when we're talking about how long to stay, that there's a lot of variables at work, including the kinds of community you're in, right? Like um, in your context with all of the military families, it's going to take longer to get grounded, but in some other context, it's not going to take as long. So maybe the first guy can leave a little bit sooner if that's if if that's what makes the most sense. And then, of course, it depends upon the planter himself, right? Some guys are are meant, and God calls them to stay in one place for decades. And for other guys, it's just not what God's calling them to do because we see both models or approaches to ministry in in, in the word of men uh, staying in one place for a long time and then others not. In fact, in Paul's own ministry, 
uh, we see a little bit of both of that, I guess. Though I want to be careful yeah, I mean, in drawing too Paul was never, tight analogies. Paul was never really, really a local church pastor. Yeah. But you're right. I mean, he was in Ephesus for three years. Um, but I will say this. I do think one of the weaknesses those of us who are solidly committed to ordinary means of grace ministry, word, sacrament, prayer, discipline, and, you know, whatever shape or form a liturgical service and thoroughly confessional theology and a love for the Reformed tradition. And um, I, I think there's a danger for us every church and every one of our situations as if they should be identical because we have this kind of, okay, well, this is our philosophy and that's it, the word and sacraments and prayer and discipline and, you know, and then confessional reformed orthodoxy and that's it. And it's, it's our standard, right? I mean, we have this standard. So then one of the weaknesses I think we have to, we have to guard against is thinking then, there's a standard for every local church that they're all going to kind of look the same. Every dynamic is going to be the same. And that's the furthest thing from the truth, right? I mean, the churches in Revelation are all different. Mm -hmm. Every church Paul writes to is different. It has unique challenges, different kinds of people, different sin issues, different structures, different strengths, you know, different gifts. Um, it is important for us to be more... Um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? I, I guess more willing um, to step back and and say, "Hey, I don't have this figured out, mm. and the Lord's going to have to help me as I go along. I have to, you know, reassess as I go along, and I'm going to have to learn from others as I go along, because there is no one size fits all. Even though we have, you know, our standard." ministerial philosophy with regard to um, planting, revitalizing, developing, and pastoring, there isn't a one-size-fits-all. So I, I think that's a burden I have, Zach, and would just want guys to consider actually coming out of seminary. Yeah, no, I hear you, and that's that's really valuable. And I don't hear you saying that, you know, things are going to look radically different in one place or another. We need different methods here and there. What I hear you saying is there's going to be continuity from one ordinary means of grace of church to another, but there's also going to be significant differences that are outside of our control, but within God's control. And he's going to orchestrate things um, to bring himself the most glory. And that's going to look a little bit different in ministry to military families than it would be to, um, uh, you know, townies in a college town, right? Or, or, uh, or a, f a largely farming community or in the heart of Manhattan or whatever the case is. Um, you're going to see points of continuity no matter what if you're faithfully pursuing God's, uh, God's word, but you're still going to have differences. It's not going to be this kind of weird cookie cutter, identical situation from one place to the other. So I appreciate the balanced way you put I mean, it. That's all. I'll every say. church, every, every church is going to have radically different dynamics. And, and that doesn't mean, you know, we adjust our worship 
the means we use because we want to use God's means, yeah. but you know how that church gets structured, what it looks like in our relationship as pastors to it and to the people and um, and and among the people. I just think it differs from church to church. Before I let you go, I do want to hear just a little bit about this conference that's coming up this weekend. It's it's fast upon us. I know Dr. P is looking forward to seeing you, Nick, and to, and to being with you for a weekend. Tell me, what was the genesis of, of this conference? Why are you putting it on? There's so many other conferences. You know, what, what happened uh, to, to, for you to say and for your elders to say, you know, it makes sense that we do this. Let's do this thing. And, and what is it about this first year and why is that significant to you? Yeah, and in some ways, I think it's premature, and I've, I'm not one of those guys that wants to have a big conference. Um, I'm, I'm actually, I'm not opposed to conferences, but I, I haven't had an itch to host a conference. I know there are other guys that, that, but I think it being the 500th year of the Reformation, one of my elders said, it'd be really nice if we could have someone, and at the same time, somebody in the congregation said, could we have Joey Piper come down here and... <laughs> preach teach and and so that kind of, uh well a couple months back and so this is a little bit last minute um it's not going to be a very super well attended conference and that's okay um i think it's going to be substantive so we're going to have dr p um he's going to be speaking on calvin's uh worship and calvin and then Terry Johnson, who's here in town in Savannah, is going to come and do a talk on the Reformation and the church's liturgy. And then we've got a really uh, solid Reformed Baptist brother up in Rankin, Georgia, which is the northern suburb of Savannah, a guy named Nick Kennicott. He was friends with um, John Miller and Chris Powell, who were two Greenville grads. And mm-hmm. Nick's just a great guy and a really close friend. He's going to talk on the Reformation and the Lord's Supper. And then um, my brother-in-law, who's the pastor of a PCA church in Savannah, is going to do a couple of readings out of Luther's commentary on Galatians. And then I'm going to speak on prayer and the role of prayer specifically in the service and with regard to his prayers before and after his sermons. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then we're going to sing five or six Reformation hymns, including... Uh, um, uh, I greet thee whom my sure redeemer art, which, you know, is attributed to Calvin. Um, and so we're excited. So it should be a good time. Nick, thank you so much for coming on to Confessing Our Hope. I, I count this as one of our alumni spotlights or graduate spotlights that Bill started last year. I'm hoping to continue that this year and uh, and really celebrate what the Lord is doing in um, not just Greenville grads specifically, but doing in his kingdom in different places and uh, with different people. So I appreciate you taking the time to come and chat with me. Thanks, Zach. Thanks so much for having me on. I really appreciated you inviting me and uh, looking forward to seeing you sometime in the near future.